Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Tim Sheehan. The UK is home to some extraordinary wildlife. From our rivers and seas to our grasslands and woodland, some truly unique plants and animals call the British Isles home. But that is changing. Since 1970, the UK has lost nearly half of its biodiversity and more land is being used for agriculture and other human activity, leaving less room for nature. In 2010, UN biodiversity targets were agreed to, but 10 years on and the world, and in particular the UK, is not doing enough to stem the tide. Analysis done by the RSPB found that the UK was failing on 14 of 20 targets that were agreed to and on six of the targets the UK had gone backwards. Decades of effort to improve the UK's biodiversity had proved expensive, labour-intensive and unable to deliver on targets. In this episode, we're looking at a new way that wildlife trusts and campaign groups want to approach wildlife and land management, a way that they believe can provide a cheap and effective solution to help recover Britain's wildlife. They want animals to do the work, or more specifically, they want bison to do the work. We own or manage around 4,000 hectares of land. We own 3,500 of those hectares, spread across about 80 sites. Paul Hadaway is the Director of Conservation and Engagement at the Kent Wildlife Trust, one of the largest wildlife trusts out of the 46 across the UK. And we were really looking at you know, what we do in our day-to-day management to begin to think about climate resilience, landscape adaptation, all of the challenges we're facing, particularly in Kent, that perhaps were not as prevalent 10 years ago. And they noticed that the wildlife management work that they were doing was very time and labour intensive and still not producing the results they wanted. All of those operations are very um, prescriptive, they're very management intense, they rely on um, volunteers, staff, and on a lot of equipment, chainsaws, brush cutters, tractors, etc., to manually manage those rhythms. And, you know, given that we're in a climate and biodiversity crisis, given that descriptive management of, of nature doesn't appear to be working as effectively as it should, given the state of nature that we, we see around us, and given that we need to be driving down our own carbon footprints, we were looking for a more natural way to do that. This traditional method of woodland management is called coppicing. Coppicing traces its roots back to Anglo-Saxon period, maybe a little bit before. But what coppicing does is it creates open spaces, open spaces for woodland floor and invertebrates to spread and move around the site. Coppicing involves cutting down trees to their base, Originally, it was simply done to collect firewood. It is now used as a way to open up an area to more sunlight, allowing more species to flourish on the forest floor, which in turn attracts more small bugs, which then attract larger animals like birds and small mammals. This method is an expensive, time-consuming way to mimic what naturally happens as large animals move through forest areas. So Paul and his team had an idea to introduce some cattle and small conic ponies, but they didn't have the impact they were hoping for. And then we had a sort of epiphany moment when we were out looking at the site one day and, and realised that actually directly neighbouring the site is the Wildwood Trust. 
who are known nationally for supplying uh, and being a, a key breeding centre for things like um, water vole, uh, for beavers, for red squirrels, pine martin, etc. But they also have a couple of captive European bison, and those animals are literally just over the fence from, from the woods. So the Kent Wildlife Trust had a new plan. Reintroduce an animal that can weigh up to a tonne that hadn't existed in the wild in the UK for thousands of years into the Bleen Woods to do the wildlife management for them. And in July of 2022, for the first time in thousands of years, a European bison was put in a UK woodland and allowed to roam freely. The introduction of European bison is part of what is known as rewilding, which aims to re-establish the natural process of wildlife management. There's quite a lot of definitions of rewilding. Our definition is that it's the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where they can take care of their, themselves. So it's about restoring natural processes and, and letting nature lead the way. We don't have an end goal that we're aiming for, but it's putting those pieces of the puzzle back in place to allow nature to lead the way. That might include restoring species or restoring different processes. Sarah King is a rewilding manager at the charity Rewilding Britain. And rewilding is not as simple as just leaving wildlife alone. I think it's worth remembering that a lot of our ecosystems and habitats and even a lot of our nature reserves and natural areas, they've been influenced by people over hundreds of years. And in some cases, we've modified them to the point where nature can't behave in the way that it would naturally behave. So sometimes we need to intervene to restore those natural processes. Sarah mentioned there are lots of different ways to define rewilding, but Paul takes issue with the name rewilding itself. I don't like the re-prefix, we tend to call it wilding, because actually it's about using natural processes to do the work that we've been doing prescriptively and to provide that dynamism and um, to be a lot more untidy and a lot more random and a lot more natural in that to, to how we would do it as, as prescriptive managers. Re, implying you're going back to a point in time, is really unhelpful because actually that's not what it's about in this case. So there is a lot of debate and has been a lot of debate about whether European bison were wherever in the UK. There are certainly fossil records of steppe bison, which are a very close relative here um, pre-Ice Age. And we would have had oryx, which were the big wild cattle that were here, that were hunted out sort of during the Neolithic kind of period. Since then, we've been relying on various domestic animals to, to do a similar job. But domestic animals don't have the same freedom to roam around a wild woodland to mimic the impact of coppicing. Well, what coppicing does is it creates open spaces, open spaces for woodland flora and invertebrates to spread and move around the site, which is why it's been used as a conservation management tool. Actually, if you then think back to why are those species there and why do they respond to that sort of treatment, it's because prior to people managing woods like that, large herbivores would have been moving through, crashing around, doing exactly the same thing. And bison are particularly well suited to fulfilling this role. So to find an animal big enough to do that, we have longhorns in our grazing um, herd at, at Camp Wildlife Trust. They are big, they, they do some of that, but what the bison do that is different is they 
they dust bathe, they bark rub, they push things over, they strip bark, they do all of this what looks quite destructive activity that actually creates some fantastic microecosystems and creates that dynamism into the system. So that's what we were looking for and that's what bison bring that perhaps the other animals don't. But getting the bison in the first place was a difficult challenge. Bison are on the Dangerous Wild Animals Act register, which means a license is required and safety to the public has to be proven. Because of the Dangerous Wild Animals legislation, we have to keep bison separate from people. So within the, the West Bean Woods, there are effectively three areas that we're currently linking with bison tunnels um, to allow them to move naturally through the, the landscape. So we were constrained by that into how much of an area we could put them into. But they are still going into around just slightly over 200 hectares of a 400 hectare site. But Paul thinks that the legislation is too restrictive when it comes to bison and that they shouldn't be considered dangerous. I think the danger piece is a real red herring, actually, because when you see bison and you see their behaviour, and I've been in with them in the wild, in or you know, semi-wild in, in, in Holland, and, you know, they are no more of a risk to you there than perhaps a dairy herd with, with calves in the UK, which is often where there are fatalities with people, you know, not understanding that they need to be careful around those, those animals. Paul also points to contradictions in the Wild Animals Act which also names red deer. And you can go and have a picnic in Richmond Park surrounded by them. So there is some really serious discrepancies in the regulatory system in the UK. So you now there's a battle there to be fought around actually the legislation requirements to make these animals, to take these animals off the dangerous wild animals, registering to be able to use them elsewhere. Both Paul and Sarah think that the danger element of these animals is being overblown and British attitudes towards animals like bison and certain predators speaks to the sanitised nature of our countryside. We've lost connection with large animals, I mean nature in general, but we've lost that kind of risk element. We've sanitised our countryside, even our nature reserves, to such an extent that we've lost that element of wildness that you get in, in a very different way on the continent. Part of that is the fact that we, you know, we've been isolated for, for 12, maybe slightly more, thousand years. So a lot of the mega animals that the, the you know the big animals that we would expect to see in the landscape never made it back post ice age. So the biggest things we've had are you know perhaps wild boar and, and deer, but we've never had lynx. We haven't had wolves back. None of them made it back, and so we've kind of lost that connection that has been far more natural on the continent. I think it's a common misconception having been in landscapes where there are wild bison, wild lynx, even wolves. Um, you, you hardly see them, um, especially lynx. They're, they're really secretive animals and they will stay away from people. And even if you go out looking for them, which I've spent hours looking for these animals, you, you just don't see them. I think what it comes down to is having a, a respect for our wildlife and for our countryside, keeping our distance. Um, but uh, a lot of the time, especially bison, they aren't actually as aggressive as you think they are. And also, I think as a population, we all need to reconnect with nature and make sure that we are understanding these animals and, and where they are. So I think education is going to be really important and it's exciting to see the new natural history GCSE coming through, which I think will help to 
restore some of our connection with nature and understanding about why these animals are so important. Despite not viewing them as dangerous animals, they still had to get dangerous animal licenses to bring in the bison. Once they had that approval, they then had to think about where they would get the bison from. So our original intention had been to get a, a ready-made herd from either Holland or um, one of the projects in, in Eastern Europe. But actually what we ended up doing was bringing together a new herd. So we've got um, a female who's come out of the Highlands Wildlife Park up in Scotland. Two females that have come from, from FOTA, which is a, a, a wildlife park outside Dublin in Ireland, and a bull that has come from Germany. This is because after the First World War, European bison were on the brink of extinction. They had been part of the European Endangered Species Programme, and while their numbers have recovered, genetics are still a key consideration. And as we, we end up with more youngsters arriving, um, there'll be an opportunity to start to mix the genetics up and to take some of them back to Europe and bring some of the European animals into the system. So it's a really important element of what we're doing is the broader European bison conservation as well. And it didn't take long for the first youngster to arrive. And to their surprise, one of the female bison arrived in Kent already pregnant. Yeah, so uh, it was a surprise. and It was like the ultimate bog-off deal of the, the century, that one. Um, we, we didn't see it coming, uh, which is interesting in itself because this talks to the fact that, that wild unculates and, and, and animals like bison can hide a pregnancy. It's a, it's a response to, to predators. So, you know, she very cleverly hid that, that pregnancy until a couple of days before she, she gave birth when we started to see signs of it was quite odd behaviour and then suddenly there's a, a calf there. So, you know, that in itself is incredible. And the fact that that calf will now learn to use this woodland in a way that you know, it will be the first genuinely kind of wild bison using that woodland and understanding the habitat and all the rest of it, that's very exciting. The point of a rewilding project is that while some low-level management to help nature restore itself may be required, there is no end goal and the result is up to nature. So traditional conservation is, um, you know, we're going from point A to point B and we're going to measure C, D and E on the way to see how we're progressing. But with rewilding... There is no predetermined endpoint. So what you're doing is monitoring to see what the change is. And you have a sense of what you expect. You expect greater bioabundance. You do expect greater diversity. You expect greater microhabitats. You expect an improvement in soil, organic matter, and in soil microbes and all those things. But to be sure about that, we're monitoring absolutely everything in that project. That project has got the most complete suite of monitoring probably of any project in the UK at the moment, from soil carbon and soil microbes through to malaise trapping for invertebrates, through to bird surveys, through to small mammal surveys, everything is being monitored. And we've actually encouraged academic institutions to come along and be part of that as well if they bring in expertise. It's an open book for them to come in and be part of that process. Rewilding projects like the introduction of bison are at early stages, and monitoring of the impact will take place over many years. But it's not just bison. Across the UK, dozens of species are being reintroduced into the ecosystem. So we see a huge number of different species reintroductions happening. Some of them are, are small animals, so um, for example there's been some grasshopper and, and dung beetle reintroductions, as well as water voles. And then some rewilding projects are aiming for bigger species, so the likes of bison or lynx, um, and even in some cases white-tailed eagles. 
So we see this whole range of different reintroductions. These are all really key species that when we don't have them in the landscape, essentially we have to try and replicate some of that behaviour and we don't always do it as well as, as nature does. While each of these species will have a different impact on the environment, these are all species that are missing from our wildlife, but much more common in Europe. So sometimes the impact is fairly predictable. Lynx are really important because they help to impact deer populations. So they can obviously predate on the deer, but also will move the deer through the landscape. And that will then result in more woodland and more natural regeneration of trees. But sometimes the results are more surprising. I actually first got into rewilding going to a beaver wetland. And I think standing there looking at this beaver wetland, I thought, I don't think we could ever create something as complex as this. I know we can create some um, solutions for it, but I think they, beavers just take it to a whole new level. So one of the famous examples of this is the Nepa State in Sussex where purple emperor butterflies have returned and they've been learning that purple emperor butterflies actually really, really love wood pasture habitats. And historically, we've always thought that they were a woodland species. So as we start to experiment with different rewilding approaches and reintroduce these species back, we can start to see that there's a lot of complexity there um, and a lot of relationships that maybe we don't know as much about as we thought we did which is incredibly exciting to see what else there is to discover. There is sometimes a fear that introducing a species could have wider unintended consequences on the ecosystem. Take Australia, which is currently facing the consequences of some poorly thought out species introductions. For example, carp were introduced to Australia in the 1800s in fish farms, but escaped into rivers in the 1960s. Carp now make up 80% of all biomass in the Murray River, with an estimated total mass of 200,000 tonnes in southeast Australia. Australia has tried explosives, poison and electricity to get rid of them. And now they're even trying to spread a strain of carp herpes to deal with the infestation. Another example is the European rabbit. Just 24 were released for hunting in 1859. Now they have spread across Australia and commit $200 million in damages to agricultural crops every year. But Sarah is sure that this won't be a problem with the animals rewilding Britain wants to introduce. I think on the whole, we probably know the impact that these species will have. And of course, we also have to remember that the species that are being reintroduced are species that used to exist here. And a lot of the other plant and, and um, animal species have evolved to coexist with the species that are being reintroduced. None of these are invasive species. They are species that the rest of UK wildlife has evolved to live beside. And the fact we no longer have them is damaging our ecosystem. One example of that is the reintroduction of the pine martin is actually showing that it's reducing grey squirrel populations across Britain because grey squirrels don't, haven't evolved with pine martens. So they're more susceptible to predation compared to red squirrels. And so the red squirrel populations are then coming back into these pine martin areas because they've learnt to exist with pine martens and can tend to escape a bit easier. 
The UK is home to some amazing wildlife, but we have been becoming less and less wild every year. Even the areas designated for nature, such as sites of special scientific interest or areas of outstanding natural beauty, even these areas are seeing decline in their level of biodiversity. Something must change in our approach to saving our wildlife. While intensive management is time-consuming and not all that effective, we can't neglect our wild space either. We've straightened a lot of the rivers, we've drained a lot of the land, so that's acting in a way that might benefit us, um, but it's not necessarily acting in a natural state. So what we, if we were to just step away from that example, say we had a straightened river, we've had, we had drained land, and we decided to just close the gate and walk away, we would still be allowing those degraded ecosystems to exist. But if we give our wildlife a helping hand, we can see our landscape return to a much more natural state. What we've seen across rewilding projects is that nature bounces back. New species can move in. Sometimes they need assistance, but we start to see lots of surprises in there with species that we didn't expect to return are returning to a lot of these areas. We're seeing soil health increase. We're also seeing carbon capture within the soils, but also from all the new tree growth and, and scrub that's emerging. And also just creating really high quality areas for people to enjoy as well. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, hosted by me and Tim Sheehan, editing and series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our own wild animal is Rory Harris. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and now on Instagram. The Engineering Matters and Reby Media team have been working on a new podcast series in partnership with HS2. How to Build a Railway is a 12-part podcast series exploring the story behind the construction of the UK's new high-speed rail line. It's now available on all podcast apps. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk.